Welcome to the Future of Processes podcast. I'm Ben Merton, CEO of Unifies, and each week I'll be talking to people in manufacturing about what it really takes to bring products to life. So this is about building an organizational culture, leadership, product design, supply chain, change management, how to attract the best talent, and in particular, how we can create better, more human processes for the factories of tomorrow. So I'm joined today by Tudor Sorayu, who heads up continuous improvement at Steam Whistle Brewing. Now, Steam Whistle is based in the heart of Toronto, right under the CN Tower, and was founded in 1998 and now produces around 90,000 bottles of preservative-free beer a day, selling across the whole of Canada. So Tudor, thank you so much for joining me today. Where are you at the moment? Currently at home, enjoying the warm weather. It's finally warm here in Toronto. Right after the meeting, I'll be going down to the brewery. Yeah, looking forward to, to the call. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great. Well, so first things first, what was it that made you get into quality and continuous improvement in the first place? Why did you sign on the dotted line? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, honestly, coming through university, I went for a bachelor's of science in biology. I, I didn't really know anything about quality assurance, quality control, processes, process improvement. I, I just thought, Honestly, I just thought science is cool and I like the way it's systematic, logical, and you can deduce stuff based on numbers and logic. And after I finished my, my university studies, I, I got a job as a quality control floor technician for a food processor, Campbell Soup. Uh, and that's when I actually started learning about quality control processes. And I just realized that what you learn in, in science courses, even though it wasn't related to food science, continuous improvement, project management, it translates very well in a lot of ways, and, and I know not everybody thinks about it, but the logical way uh, science flows and data flows and uh, data analytics can be used to manage food science, any process, and any continuous improvement for a company or process steps organization. So, Right. So after you decided to go down this route, was there anything particularly surprising that you learned about quality and continuous improvement in those early days? Uh, yeah, it's it's the realization that a lot of different people see the same thing different ways. And I know it's a bit cliche to say it like that, but it's true. A lot of people come from different backgrounds, both regionally, geographically, but also educational. Uh, so people literally look at the same process and think something else of it. So it's basically bringing alignment to people from different departments, different levels of management to see the process as you want them to see it to make sure that everybody's aligned on it. And that way, everybody moves forward to improve it the best way possible. Right. And so what were the processes that you think that you face the biggest challenges with as far as you know implementing continuous improvement and quality management in general? Uh, are there any ones that sort of leap to mind as being a p the particular troublemakers? Yeah. So the easiest actually was bringing quality control or quality assurance department and laboratory departments in alignment because most people have a food science diploma or, or a bachelor's degree in biology, chemistry, food science, and so forth. So even though there's some differences there, most people are, for the most part, aligned on the scientific method, being able to read GMPs and the regulations that we have to follow. So that's the easy part. The harder part was to uh, look at the process and work with production, packaging, and marketing, and sales, and everything else that's outside the science continuous improvement mentality, and make sure that you present the numbers and you present the process in such a way that mid-management, floor management, executive management, and the workers all agree and understand that, especially for production and packaging and distribution. Everybody aligns that this is the best way to move forward, both from a bottom line perspective for the company, but also for all the people that are working there. 
So specifically, how did you do this across so many different cross-functional teams? Was this a lot of meetings, reporting, data analytics? How did you make it happen? So the best that worked for me is to get everybody together and then look at a process flow. Just a simple process flow. I know there's a lot of ways to, to analyze it and look at it and present the data. Look at the process flow from a graph form and a step-by-step process. And you basically put all the inputs, all the processing, work in progress, and all the outputs. And everybody understands everything that goes in. And that includes materials, resources, labor, costs of everything, cost of labor, and also the human factor is important. And that's, I found especially important for the workforce itself. You have to put the human factor in as an input. So people understanding what they need to do, being happy, understanding that this is the way to do it. That's best for them, easiest for them. They can do it the fastest, the easiest way that they have the least amount of stress, the least amount of risk when it comes to quality and efficiency and consistency of the outputs. So when you look at all the inputs and the process steps and the outputs at the end of it, hopefully everybody realizes that this is a good change and we need to do this for the bottom line of the company, for consistency of the final output. And the people themselves actually want to push this forward afterwards because they realize if we change it this way, it's actually better for them on a day-to-day basis on the floor. Yeah, it's about building consensus around that as well, I guess, and just getting people to understand the long-term need. But often trying to get those processes in place can require a considerable amount of a change of approach, which sometimes meets a lot of resistance. Did you have any experience with people who were resistant to that kind of change because they weren't able to see the benefits, the long-term benefits, until obviously it was proven that these were the long-term benefits and that ultimately it was going to work? Did you, did you face those kinds of issues? Yeah, for sure. Uh, again, uh, that, that can always happen is the human factor. It's the least consistent out of every input and output. It's the toughest thing to control from a quality perspective. So when that happens, usually what I try to do is sit down with the person itself, uh, himself or herself. And, and if that doesn't work, uh, bring in their direct supervisor manager and sit down, maybe the three of us and try to explain and not just explain, but ask them why they think this isn't working and everybody has a voice. And more often than not, the people that are actually working on the floor, working on the process itself, they know more than us sitting in offices and uh, looking at data. So their voice is obviously important. And that's one of the main reasons I think the workers themselves have to be part of these meetings. It's just not management. And once you hear what they have to say and their input, sometimes actually we changed a bit, tweaked the process a bit based on that. And they were happy with that. And actually it made it even better. In a few cases, people still don't want to change. And you know, some people have the attitude that they don't like change, obviously. So whatever you say, they're not going to listen to. You know, unfortunately, in that case, you have to escalate and you have to implement the process anyway. And more often than not, once they do it, they start seeing that it makes sense. Their teammates are liking it. And then usually they conform to it. Right. So and a lot of this is really connected to this concept that we talk about a lot in continuous improvement, which is to build a culture of continuous improvement. What do you think that really means? The easiest thing for continuous improvement in any, any project is for management or for myself to work on stuff and figure stuff out. But the most important thing is to implement that continuous improvement culture in the company or any organization is to get the people involved, get the workers involved, all the steps of the process. So uh, when you have a kickoff meeting on the project or a continuous improvement process, get the workers' voice to be heard. Even if they have nothing to contribute, at least they feel like they belong, they're part of the team. You're not making changes that might negatively impact them or their career. So just make sure that everybody is involved from the very beginning. 
Yeah. In my experience, it's always the, the people that are most resistant to change are the sales, the customer facing people. They, they're, they're the least likely to see the positive benefits of change upstream because they're going about doing their work. And, you know, being in sales is not an easy job by any stretch. But it's hard, I think, for people who are customer facing to understand that small changes to how they behave can have such a massive positive in, impact downstream. Partly also because they're not actually often in the office all day. You know, they're often outside and dealing with things. No, I, I agree with you. I, I really respect salespeople in a lot of ways. It's the toughest job out there. And again, they come from a different background and their job is very tough and they want to make the sales. Obviously that's the oxygen of the business is sales. We, we need to make it, the money back and make a profit. So I have huge respect for them. But like you said, because of these inputs or differences, it's hard to get them aligned. But from my experience, this the same way it works. If you involve them from the very beginning, over time in numerous projects, slowly they start to understand the importance of it and they get on board. So you've worked in large companies like Campbell's Soup and obviously some smaller organizations. Do you feel that the size of the organization makes any difference in building a culture of continuous improvement? You know, there's some similarities across the board, but... From my experience, every single company I worked at approaches it differently. It's never right. the same. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, coming from quality and consistency is a bit shocking because everybody wants to have consistency, but everybody approaches it in a different way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's not consistent in itself. So I think on smaller scale teams versus midsize and, and large teams, there's differences how to best approach it to get your point across and to make implement change management. I think generally speaking on smaller teams, it's easier to do just because there's less people, less stakeholders, less variety in what people think we should do. And as you upscale to a large team, the more people you have, the more departments you have, you have to, quote unquote, convert people to this uh, consistent and efficient way of doing things. In some ways, it's easier on a larger scale because usually you have more budget support and staff to assist you. So it's a pros and cons situation, I find. Right. I mean, and, and another area of this is, of course, the number of people you have to win over to the ideas that you're trying to put forward. I mean, I, I think, you know, everyone accepts the need for continuous improvement, but the methods and, and the starting point is often something which is a dispute. And the number of people you have to buy in, especially when you're dealing with cross-functional teams, presumably you've seen that kind of proliferate when you get to larger organizations. And so with a smaller team of people, presumably you're able to get the right leadership buy-in that you need to be able to start on some of these initiatives. Is that something that you've faced or have you always found that leadership buy-in is a foregone conclusion? I honestly wouldn't even say small versus large. I just think it's different organizations and wherever you go, it depends who's in leadership positions. And you can go to a large organization and find the executive leadership approaches it one way and have a set of beliefs. Then you go to another large organization, just the same size, and you see that the executive leadership have a very different mindset how they approach it. And after you've got leadership buy-in, are there any specific tools that you use to uh, bring about change? I mean, obviously, there's bound to be some Excel sheets lurking somewhere at Steam Whistle, but is there anything else that you currently use to enable quality and continuous improvement? Yeah. So one of the cool things when I started here was that we were building a second production facility. So we went from one to two. So we're building a whole quality assurance department, an actual physical production lab, and the standard operating procedures, basically everything from scratch. So that's why I really love the opportunity to build a department and a quality assurance system from scratch. And obviously, we started with Excel spreadsheets. We still use Excel spreadsheets. It's still the bread and butter in a lot of ways. Obviously, very inexpensive. But we also, a couple of years ago, we implemented the LIMS system, which is obviously a lab information management system. So what I, I like to see Unless the company is very small, it needs to have some form of 
data analysis, data collect, uh, collection, especially batch related for quality and consistency to achieve that and to have a baseline when you do any continual improvement projects to see how the baseline changes. Cool. So on a more lighthearted note than Lim systems and Excel sheets, what are the fun things about working for a beer company? Do you get, do you get free beer? <laughs> is is um, it unlimited lifetime supply of beer forever? Is that part of your contract? <laughs> I want to say yes, but it's not. Uh, and that's a legal requirement. For, at the very least in Ontario, you can't give free beer because it's a controlled substance. But we do get beer. We just have to pay, I think, the taxes on it at the end of the year. Like it's, it's a tax deduction. But for all intents and purposes, everybody basically gets a 12-pack of beer a week so that they right. can take that home. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a lot of beer. Yes. Yeah, exactly. They'll keep you going. Uh, it's, it's just just about enough during COVID. But then I think, you know, as we come out of COVID, then we may find other ways to occupy ourselves and sitting at home with 12 packs of beer. But yeah. <laughs> well, no, honestly, it's so it's so much beer. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people find it giving it as gifts to friends and family <laughs> after a yeah, while. I bet. So other than offering a lot of free beer, which I imagine is quite a draw for people who are just fresh out of college, what else do you do to recruit people into quality and continuous improvement? It's getting more and more hard to get people to join manufacturing. How do you guys go about it? Well, from my experience, I think the most important thing is, especially in Ontario now, obviously manufacturing has been not getting bigger. It's been either declining or staying the same. Also, by the same token, we have a lot of universities here with science programs. So there's easily six, seven big universities in Ontario. So you have a lot of people that come with the science education, food science, biology, chemistry, biochemistry, and so forth. And they need jobs, right? Obviously. So I think the biggest, most important thing is to get people to apply in manufacturing positions versus research positions, even though they're quality assurance, is to talk to them and explain to them how quality is important to manufacturing, how you can apply science to the process and everything you learned. It's soft skills, it can be indirect skills. Obviously, you're not going to do the same type of work you did in biology or or food science labs at university or college. But just to show them, depending on the company you work for, some companies do product testing, chemical testing, microbiological testing, and of course, science-based audits and meetings and so forth and data analytics. So it's explaining to them how they can use those skills from academia into this and have a smooth transition. A lot of colleges have co-op programs, internships. Not all the universities have it. I think it's very important to somehow work with universities, make sure everybody has a practical co-op or internship. So that way more people can get access to manufacturing and production companies and see what it's all about, Uh, get, get their foot in the door too. And the other thing I would like to see happen is have seminars at most of the universities, because again, colleges have more co-op programs, but have seminars at universities, bring students in, especially undergraduate students, maybe in third, fourth year, and have these training sessions or face-to-face meetings and explain to people that there's this whole field out there that a lot of people coming out of universities like myself had no idea exists. I was just looking at the research labs and medical labs and opened the eyes of the new generation of people knowing that these companies exist, this field exists, and we always need good people. Right. So now, obviously, all these recruitment efforts will fall flat if you don't have great quality and continuous improvement leadership within the company after people have joined, right up to the top, the CEO, ideally. But what do you think it takes to be a great leader in continuous improvement? I want to say understanding. And I actually have a quick question for you before. Um, From your experience, Ben, how many CEO, C-level leaders in organizations come from a quality background? Very, very few. (laughs) <laughs> so that's, that's the problem. Well, that can be a challenge, right? 
that's a big challenge. And I, so, you know, it, it is a big challenge. And a lot of people pay lip service to it if they, if they can. And often in regulated industries like food processing, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, that sort of stuff, there's a, there's an external need that requires the CEO or, or C-level people to actually start taking it a lot more seriously, which is obviously not ideal. You don't want it to be about sticks to get people to do this. You want this to come from within and to, to recognize the need for this without actually the, the external oversight of it. I'll, I'll add to that. I think, like you said, I had the same experience and that's how most of it happens usually. Like you said, there's regulatory bodies like in Canada, we have Canadian Food Inspection Agency. We have Environmental Division of the, the City, Ministry of Labor, Workers' Compensation Board, and everything these bodies that tell companies to do, people have to do, right? But I don't like, I'm not a big fan of waiting for somebody from outside to tell you to do it, or you're going to get in trouble or fined, and then you do it. So I think the biggest thing uh, to explain to C-level executives why we should be doing this as a quality leader, bring this point across is honestly how these projects and the focus on quality and consistency is going to affect the company in a positive way, obviously to the bottom line long term. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I, I completely get it, and I, I think that's absolutely uh, right. I, I, one of the challenges is quantifying ROI in a measurable way, because there's so many intangibles in quality management outside of just the regulatory need for continuous improvement. It's very hard, and we we struggle with this a lot, um, trying to explain to people why investing in quality processes is actually a necessity from a profit and loss point of view as well, because the 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 impact of say take a corrective action right you 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 won't often see that impact in a very direct way at least not immediately it might take a long time for that to manifest and it often manifests in ways that are completely disconnected from the original problem that's been defined so people are obviously very good at dealing with disposal actions and getting stuff moving on the production line but getting those longer term items that sometimes will require investment and not necessarily prove ROI in the, in an obvious way uh, for for quite some time is is a big challenge to get i think these these leaders to understand like do you have any experience with that and you know what would you suggest to combat this I'll, yeah you know what I, I, I can give you a specific example we recently over the last couple of years invested in new testing analytical equipment for the beer process just the machine itself easily over a hundred thousand dollars obviously the reagents and the labor hours and so forth those are on top of it so what we did with this analytical machine is basically making beer is you brew the beer you put it in a in a big tank and uh, you ferment it with yeast, right? It converts the sugars to alcohol. So with this testing, it allowed us to realize we can ferment the beer faster if we do some changes and tweaks to the process and analyze the data. So we did that over, I want to say, almost a year's time. And we reduced the fermentation time of some of our brands by 10 to 15%, which frees 10 to 15% tank capacity to ferment the next batch. So that was very easily to translate into an ROI based on all the inputs and labor and testing over a year versus how much faster we can make the beer and cycle time reduction. The hard part on that was taking into account all the other variables we didn't know about. Specifically, we didn't know if this testing is actually going to give us an opportunity to have the cycle time reduction. So there was a risk involved with that. So how do you put percentage or a cost on that risk? I don't think there's any perfect way of doing it. So you have to include the risk in there as a numerical value somehow. Right. This may not work. <laughs> this may not work. Yeah. We, we invested a couple hundred thousand over a year and it didn't work. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I, I get it. I think it is definitely easier to be able to show this stuff in the physical world on the shop floor where you can clearly show, you know, input cost reduction or wastage reduction because you're, you're able to measure that. I, I feel like there are other areas of continuous improvement which are significantly neglected around knowledge processes, around processes that are ancillary but drive a lot of the functions that happen on the shop floor. And trying to get people to understand changing those processes ultimately is a profitable thing to do. And you talked a lot at the beginning about things like happiness. You know, how do you measure the impact of a change of a process which increases happiness for people? And why should the leadership care? Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I'm sure you can, you would know exactly what I'm going to say. Technically, it's doable, right? People are happier. You can have audits or reviews and ask people five questions, how happy they are and engaged they are every quarter, every six months. And then you make a process change and you redo it. And then you can analyze how many people leave the company, how many people you have to hire, all of this stuff. But yet, at the end of the day, good luck putting a number on that. <laughs> yeah, of course. It definitely takes a good leader to be able to go beyond just what the CFO is telling you to do. Now, Tudor, I have one final question before we have to end. Considering everything we've talked about so far, where do you see the future of quality and continuous improvement? What does it look like in 10 or 20 years from now? I think uh, basically the human factor stays the same. We have to be really engaged with the people. Again, I'd like to see seminars and so forth, bring awareness to people coming through the educational system to come work in manufacturing labs, production labs, quality assurance roles, audit roles, and so forth. The one thing I think is going to change, stuff's getting more automated as time goes by. And obviously, most stuff started changing to become more automated in production, packaging, and so forth. But it's slowly changing a bit on the quality side too. So even in our lab, uh, we used to do a lot of manual tests. We still do manual tests, but some tests we invested in some equipment and they automatically basically do the test themselves and spit out the values. You just have to look and analyze the trends. So I think over the next 10, 20 years, that's still going to happen. We're going to have more and more automation on the quality side as well. So I think we, over the years, have to change a bit of our scope. We're still going to do the testing, but we have to also take into account that we're going to be able to generate a lot more data automatically and faster. So we're going to have to get better at analyzing the data, analyzing the trends. And from a quality consistency and continuous improvement, I think it's going to be even more data-driven to make changes and part of the day-to-day -day work. But I think in a lot of ways, this is good because we're going to have access to more generated data to present C-level executives and all the other coworkers and managers, a more data-driven, logical approach to why we should make the changes. So I think in a lot of ways, it's going to improve as it becomes semi-automatic, but it also in a way we have to adapt to it and learn how to shift from doing the testing, but also analyzing more and more big data. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because I mean, while I think that I'm totally in agreement with you that you're going to see a lot of data proliferation and more data, more machines that are going to be able to to give you more interesting and useful process data. You can't, on the other hand, eliminate the human need for, for example, a root cause analysis. <laughs> you know, there's going to be no automation of root causes in my in my view. Obviously, you can certainly use data to predict certain types of root causes and stuff like that. But ultimately, there's still a lot of the need for humanness in quality processes. Uh, no, you're 100% right. I, I think um, it, it might have an impact on uh, labor, manual labor, production packaging. Uh, over the years, obviously, these jobs are dwindling a bit. But on the quality side, I don't think that's going to happen. And like you said, because we need people to analyze the root cause analysis, corrective actions, data, use all their tools, and basically 
your brain and what yes. you studied and what you learned in your experience to figure out solutions to the problems. And I don't think that can be automated. And I think that's that's something shared across quality, not just in manufacturing and production, but also the service industry. And I have uh, friends that work in finance and IT, and they feel the same exact way. Obviously, stuff's being more automated in finance and IT as well. But they have the same opinion that the you know they have quality assurance, quality control roles in finance and IT too. That's never going to go away. It's going to stay the same or even increase uh, because you need people to use their brain, to use their education and experience across all these fields to analyze the data and figure out how to best change processes based on that data. Cool. So we need to wrap up now, Tudor. And I wanted to thank you so much for joining me and talking so frankly about your experience and points of view. Um, this was genuinely fascinating. And I wish you all the best for your continuous improvement endeavors in the future. Ben, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It, it was a great hour of talking to you. And uh, yeah, hopefully talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Future of Processes podcast. I've really enjoyed talking to Tudor Sarayu about building a culture of continuous improvement in food processing. And I especially liked his focus on employee happiness. For more discussions on the future of processes, please visit futureofprocesses.com. Alternatively, if you'd like to talk to me directly, feel free to email me at ben at futureofprocesses.com. Finally, please also share this with anyone in your organization that you think might benefit from it. See you next week.